Well, if you uh, have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 90, or if you uh, haven't brought one, there should be one there in the chair back in front of you, but we're going to look at the passage uh, in a little bit of detail, so it might be good to have it open in front of you. Today is the start of our summer in Psalms. We've done this last three years, and we're doing it again. And it's been my, uh, it is my privilege to start us off this, uh, this summer with the first psalm in book four. Uh, it is Psalm 90, prayer of Moses, a man of God, or the man of God. That is not a bad designation to have in the Bible. Moses, the man of God. In fact, that reminds me that I've got some There it is up there in front, a little picture of somebody who probably looks very similar to Charlton Heston, but (laughs) Moses, the man of God. Now, now Moses being the author of this means that this would be the first of all the Psalms written, some 3,500 years old. So we're, we're looking at a pretty ancient poem. And on the other end of the spectrum, there would have been Psalms written just after the exile and, uh, you know, around 500 or so B.C., before Christ. So we've got a span of a long time, a millennium, where these psalms were written, uh, expressing uh, how we think, how we act, how we behave, how we worship, how we pray, how we sing. So the psalms are a spectacular work stuck in the middle of the Bible for us as God's people to be taught how to pray and how to think about him. Like Moses' writings, this one is a bit deep and demanding, Um, and so we're going to have to think about what he is saying here today, because this is a treatise about humanity, about time, about sin, about wrath, and about death, and about God. All of these huge topics crammed into this one poem. I think that this, uh, this psalm, is, it sounds to me, and I was, uh, numerous commentators mentioned the same thing, that it seems that this is a reflection of Moses on Genesis 1 through 3, that he was entrusted to write as well. And so it deals with some pretty big topics. Um, in the prayer book, in the, in the Book of Common Prayer, this psalm was to be read at funerals. So it might not be the most uh, exciting or uplifting, but certainly has a, the gravitas of Moses as he um, writes something that we really need to hear, even though it might not be the most flattering thing to us. So this was written, or this was read out of the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 15 was out of the new, and so this psalm has been read thousands upon thousands of times as people's lives here on earth have ended. It's about humanity, as I mentioned. And I think the argument could be made that in our time, the most hotly contested area of doctrine is that of the doctrine of humanity, anthropology as it's called, of of mankind. Um, Evolution is a huge worldview, as you know, and it is the framework that says that we 
humans are all alone in the universe, that that the scientific method has determined for us that we're the apex of creation and that we're that this is all that there is. Remember Carl Sagan, the universe is all that there's ever been, all there will be, all that this is it. There is no God. And as the apex, we are as close to God as it comes. And yet, paradoxically, we're no different than the other animals. And so then paradoxically, again, we're supposed to act as the highest, and yet we're no different than the rest. And there's no rhyme or reason to any of this. We're just animals ourselves. It's a doctrine of man that um, to hold this, we're given a story of origins that I think rivals some of the fantastic stories of old that you know stars exploded and that's what's making up my body and and that's all that's that it's all about and we could go on and I know I'm taking a huge topic and making it very simple but it's to this point that when all is said and done the evolutionary worldview denies God so that it can elevate man and we can do what we want because we're the height. Moses is going to have something to say about that. But unfortunately, that's not the only doctrine of man thing that's going on. There are some that are within Christendom, um, barely within Christendom, but, but they proclaim a, a message in which man is elevated as well. In the, in the prosperity gospel, or health and wealth gospel, you know. It's not just in America, but it's, it's spread throughout the world. I remember I was on a, able to go to one trip in Uganda, and there were these massive posters of rallies that these health and wealth gospels were, preachers were going to hold. And so around the world, this, this message is being proclaimed, and behind it is the idea that when Jesus emptied himself, Philippians 2, he actually divested himself of his, of his divinity. And he became very much a human who was utterly dependent upon the Spirit for what he did. And so then the teaching goes that we in his image are also people who can be dependent upon the Spirit. And that means we can do what Jesus did. And we can speak things into existence. And we can heal and we can create wealth because if we're just dependent on the Spirit like Jesus was dependent on the Spirit, then, then we can do these things and that's what God wants for us. It's an insidious doctrine of man because it claims the truths of Scripture while it diminishes God and makes Him small so that we can become big. And in particular, it's Jesus and His majestic person who's diminished the most. And then we can even go outside of Christendom, can't we? There's the Mormon church that teaches that we can become gods, that our God is actually one of us who just farther along the development chain than what we are. And he's been glorified, but he's just a human being, that we are actually all that there is. So the doctrine of man is highly contested in our world. There's all different things that could be said about it. And into this, Moses, the man of God, speaks clearly. The man of God speaks for God in giving us a viewpoint and a, and a, and a, 
a doctrine of who we are that is radically different than what we hear as we go about in our day-to-day. And it comes, as I said, I think, right out of his reflection of the story that was revealed to him of the very origins of humanity. And so we're going to ask and hopefully get an answer to the question, who are we? Who are we, biblically, led by Moses as we read this poem? Now, because it's a poem, we need to read it a little differently than we read other parts of Scripture. Uh, If you're reading, say, an epistle of Paul, and you know he's really tightly logical and reasoned, you've got to follow carefully as he works through an argument, a poem is not like that. A poem is meant to hit you with the totality of it. It's the whole composition and all of the images work together. And so we need to understand a poem as a piece rather than, say, working through line by line or thought by thought. And so we want to talk a little bit about how this uh, poem lays out in, uh, uh, in its entirety, and then I'll go back and, and make a few observations about it and, and why I think it makes a difference in our lives. Um, and so hopefully this, this will become a poem that has great meaning to you um, because this week it's, it's really bloomed in my mind. When I first read it, I was like, wow, that's kind of depressing. But it's actually very exciting. So what is, uh, what is happening here? <clears throat> Moses, and his, as, the, as the writer guided by the Spirit, very helpfully lays out how we're supposed to read this poem. Look in verse 3, where he says, Return, O children of man. And then look in verse 13, and he says, Return, O Lord. And so with these two repetitions of the word return, we have this kind of um, this thing just hates me. Can you just advance it? Can you advance it one? You have this, this layout here. Verses one and two, and then you have the return which is spoken or uh, by God to man that we're going to return to dust. Sounds an awful lot like Genesis. And then you have verse 13 where return is prayed back to God um, by Moses as he leads us in prayer. And so you have this basic outline. And although we have to figure out what Moses is saying here, at least we know now how the the passage or the, the psalm breaks out. In that first section, then, we see that the themes that we had, that I had mentioned earlier begin to play out, that the Lord is our dwelling place in all generations. I've got the ESV here. I don't know what you have in front of you, but, but all generations is actually the same syntax as the end of verse 2, everlasting to everlasting. So it might be and probably should be the Lord has been our dwelling place from generation to generation just as he is from everlasting to everlasting. He has been established forever, and we have found our transcendence as we've been joined to him. As the generations come and go, it's that, it's that connection to the Almighty as our dwelling place that has given us an element of timelessness. 
And actually, that's how it was in the garden, wasn't it? We weren't supposed to die. Our time wasn't supposed to end. He was supposed to be our dwelling place from generation to generation as we lived with him in paradise. But it, it didn't work out that way, did it? And we saw that as Jonathan read the second, that return, O children of man, that actually could be translated sons of Adam, B'nai Adam. Another reflection on Genesis 3, that because of sin, because of uh, our rebellion, when Adam's teeth bit into that fruit in the garden, sin and rebellion came in. Death followed immediately, and everything changed. And we went from the glory of verses 1 and 2 to the horror of verses 3 through 12. We're alienated from God, His wrath upon us, and time becomes our enemy. The timelessness of verse 1, dwelling with Him from generation to generation, now He is unaffected, and a day seems like a thousand years. Vice versa, a thousand years seems like a day, or even a watch in the night to Him. And yet for us, the psalmist says, 80 years is about the limit of our strength. And as I get older, I realize how true that is. We have become deeply affected by time because of sin. And because of sin, God's wrath comes upon us. That people are not just the apex of creation. We're not autonomous. We're not independent. We are creatures who were created for something magnificent, and in our rebellion we became slaves. Slaves to sin. Alienated from God. Death entered in. That's the picture of humanity that Moses paints for us. It is far different than those human elevating doctrines that I described a few minutes ago. Sober, and yet it's powerful. Our short lives come to a brief end, and so Moses says in 11 and 12, here's what you should do, and I want to talk about that in just a few minutes, but I want to go back to... uh, so the whole picture we have, what we were created for in verses 1 and 2, the terrible sin and wrath and death that came about because of our rebellion in verses 3 through 12. But then in 13, return, O Lord, relent, turn back. It could actually be translated to repent as long as we understand that that's Moses leading us to pray, Lord, change your mind, fix this. Not that we're asking God to repent from any sin. Return, O Lord, change your mind. How long is this going to happen? Have pity on us. And for the first time in this poem, in verse 13, God's covenant name is given. God, it is your covenant shown to us in your steadfast love, which is his covenant loyalty and his covenant faithfulness to us and his covenant love to us. 
satisfied in the morning with that. May your covenant reverse what has happened to us. You alone can fix this. We can't do it on our own. We are not independent. We're not all there is in the universe. We are dependent upon you. Please fix this. Remember your promises. Remember your covenant. Give us salvation. Reveal yourself to us. Look there in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants. Reveal yourself and your glorious power to your children. Establish the work of our hands. He's not, he's not praying there that, that we'll be able to build things that last a long time. He's actually saying, give us the significance of lasting, of being united back again with you. So the outline of the psalm then, I think, becomes more along these lines. It's in the form of a, whoops, it's in the form of a chiasm, the ABA format that was so typical of the Hebrew mind. God with mankind transcends time. That in the garden before the fall, that was the case that we had. And then our rebellion, and then our sin. It doomed us. A view of man that's not very flattering and certainly not very popular, and yet Moses says this is the case for us as he reflects back on Genesis and on Genesis 5 and the and he died staccato strain that comes after each name in that list. Death came in, the wrath of God. We don't live in a world where people want to accept the wrath of God. I remember watching a debate once between Christopher Hitchens and somebody, I can't remember, Hitchens was one of the famous new atheists of years ago. And I remember it was at this very point where the, the Christian who was debating him said that Hitchens was under God's wrath, that Hitchens was answerable to God. And I, I, just, I, I watched him because he was such a clever speaker. I didn't believe a word he said, but, but he was very witty. And I had never seen anything like this. When that man said that he was responsible and answerable to God, Hitchens literally changed. And his, his face reddened and he lost his eloquence, the anger that somebody would tell him that he was a dependent creature upon God. It's not a popular view. And yet, if we are going to have the covenant of God come upon us and give us His steadfast love and bring us back to the timelessness of having everlasting life, we must admit that it is our rebellion and it is our sin that has brought His wrath upon us. And Moses knew it only so well when you think back of what he experienced, not just in writing Genesis, but what he experienced with his own people, leading them through the desert and exile uh, as they had rejected God's goodness, as they had said that his promises had failed, that he had brought them out in the desert to just die. In fact, I think that that's, there's a, a bit of a, 
uh, intentionality in the Spirit in placing this psalm next to Psalm 89 that shows that this is, this is what uh, was happening in this psalm, that this is the right interpretation, because Psalm 89 is a psalm of Ethan where he starts off by saying, here's, here's all that you promised to the Davidic covenant that you're going to do through your king, that you're going to have all of these glorious promises. And then in verse 46, I'm sorry, but in 38 he says, but now you have cast off and rejected. And the questions that come at the end of Psalm 89 are the questions that Psalm 90 addresses. Look at verse 46 of Psalm 89 right before it. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn? Remember how short my time is. What vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Here, the end of the Davidic king, not ex what they expected, and the same questions come up. The brevity of life, the promises of God, the, the wrath, the very questions that Psalm 90 deals with. How do we view life? How do we view ourselves? Who are we? And Moses says, we are people who have been created for something so much more. And in our rebellion, it is gone. Our years are quickly gone. And they fade like grass that so quickly turns brown in that ancient Near Eastern heat. Well, God has been our dwelling place. Let's kind of work through and make a few observations here before I close this up. Dwelling place was used by Moses in a very similar way in, in Deuteronomy uh, 33. Let me read that to you. It says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Timelessness. We were meant to be with Him in unending days. Creatures of time, certainly, but unending time. Linked to God, God with man. Even before the world was brought forth, that's birth language, even before you had, had formed the earth and the world, that God had brought this forth. There's a lot of commentators who get really worried about this because that idea of birthing creation it ties similarly to the ancient Near East, and they're like, oh, that's the, it's, it's kind of not that. I don't think Moses was too worried about that. Here, let me, let me give you a picture. This would have been the cosmology that Moses would have grown up with in Egypt. So that the, the one reclining at the bottom is the earth goddess, Geb, and the one who's over top of her in yellow is the sky god. And in between you see... Um, the Pharaoh, and then Amun, the sun god, is in the boat, symbolizing the rising and setting of the sun. I don't think Moses bought into that too much. I don't think that we have to worry that Moses is, is bringing in some foreign or Egyptian cosmology here. He's saying that before God birthed 
the world. This is what had happened. And now there's death. And I think we're supposed to see that birth and death imagery that's going on. It was perfect. And sin came into the world. And death through sin. That's what I think the first part of that is saying that God with man transcends time. And so how do we get back to the garden? How do we deal with this second passage of sin and wrath and time that's so fleeting and we are soon gone and fly away? You see there at the end of verse 10. How do we deal with this? Time has no impact on God. That's clear. He's unaffected by it. It's a thousand years, a millennia, or just simply as a day, or even more as a watch in the night, about three hours. He is not bound by time. And yet we are. In verse 5, we're like the grass that, that in the morning seems like everything is great, but by evening time it's over and done. The heat of the day has faded us and withered us. We are incredibly bound by time. But it's not just time. It's not as though we can take a view that says that we are, are uh, the, the apex of creation and it's just our bodies aren't meant to run all that long. By the time we get to be a little past my age, it's kind of hard to keep going and we die. That's not what Moses says. He says, no, we are brought to an end by your anger, in verse 7, by wrath that if we do not define ourselves by our relationship to God, we have not understood who humanity and what humanity truly is. We are not autonomous, we're not independent. That is a Darwinian lie that we cannot accept. We can only define ourselves by our relationship to God. And that, before we get to the last section of hope, in that middle section is a life that is sorrowful and fleeting and sinful with God's wrath upon us and our secret sins before Him. It is not pretty, is it? Boy, can we be thankful that uh, this poem didn't end at the end of verse 12. It's not hard to see that in verses 13 to 17, we're going to be talking about what Jesus did because it is there right before us. Teach us to number our days, Moses says, that we might get a heart of wisdom. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The fear of God is to be our response to the realization of who he is. That's a, an awe, a reverence that realizes that, that we are his creatures. He is the creator. We are to live according to his ways, that our lives are to be in alignment with what he wants. And we're to understand his power and his wrath to the degree that we have the fear of him. In other words, what what verse 11 is saying is that our fear of God should match the power of His anger. Now think about that for a moment. Who could live a life 
of awe and reverence and obedience to God in such perfection that it would actually match the wrath of God? Any one of us? No. But thankfully there was someone. It was actually God himself, Jesus, who comes and lives a life of such perfection, of the fear of God, the relationship with him, that it matched the wrath of God. That he was fully able to absorb that in his perfection and provide the covenant love, the covenant salvation for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection that we celebrated this morning in the Lord's Supper. That when Moses, hundreds, thousand and a half, 1,500 years before Jesus comes along, prays for these things, he's praying for things that only Jesus could and only Jesus would do. To live a life that is, can compensate and defeat and absorb the wrath of God for those who would trust in Him. That's a pretty spectacular thing. And so Moses prays then, teach us to number our days. That doesn't mean to know how long you're going to live. It means to realize that your days are fleeting and to live them wisely and to live them in obedience and the fear of God, to respond to Him in imitation of how Jesus lived that we might not pretend, like Adam and Eve, like so many, that we're the boss, but we realize that we are to live in the fear of God. How should we then live? Francis Schaeffer famously asked in his, in his book and in his, his video series. We live by the fear of God, understanding who we are in relationship to Him. And that brings us to our last section then. This idea of God joining back together, establishing us, giving us an everlastingness that only He has and only He can give us is actually the gospel itself, isn't it? Matthew 1 says, Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. That He entered into time to redeem it. And to redeem our days. Look at what Moses has us pray for. Satisfy in the morning. This is the morning that, that we had in verse 5. Thought was really hopeful, but by the end of the day we were faded and withered. Our lives so short. And now he says, satisfy in the morning with this covenant love that we will rejoice and be glad all of our days. Redeem our days, Lord. Give us as many good days and joyful days and glad days as we have had sad days. And that's been answered for us. And how? Jesus promises us everlasting days with Him. Far more than the sad days that we're going to have even if we get to 80 or 90 or even beyond. There's no balance because God's grace has so extended beyond our sinfulness. He's redeemed the time in redeeming us, in bringing about the end of sin, in putting away death, 
in bringing us back to live with him as a dwelling place from generation to generation. It's really a powerful poem, isn't it? No wonder it was chosen to be read at such a pivotal point in life as we think about who we are and the end of our days here. We're his very children in verse 16. A concept that whatever Moses was thinking there, we know that it has been blossomed into something so glorious and so beautiful that we've been brought into the very family of God by this this covenant love, by this covenant God who has given us His Son, that we now belong to the very Trinity because we are in Christ and dwelt by the Spirit, sitting at the right hand of God. His work, His glorious power has been shown to us far beyond verses 1 and 2 far beyond what we were in Eden we are now in the beloved and it's in that light then I think that we read the last request in verse 17 may your favor may your beauty rest upon us it reminds me of of the the prayer of Aaron in Numbers 6 where it says may your face shine upon us give us peace establish the work of our hands upon us again he's not saying bless my building opportunities bless the work that i do he's saying give us significance that as your creation work in verse 2 was everlasting and the mountains are stable and they've been there from generation to end of generation, give us that same everlasting significance. In a real way, he's praying for everlasting life. And that too has been extended to us as we've been given the life of God through Jesus Christ. A return back to the Eden ideal, I guess as far as Moses knew it, but we know that it has so far exceeded it. Children of God brought back into everlasting fellowship with Him through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ with as many days ahead of us of rejoicing and of gladness that we can imagine because of what He has done for us to reverse the terrible center section of death wrath so what do we do with this remarkable psalm now that we've talked about it and kind of seen what it has to say how should it make a difference in our lives and in our relationship with god tomorrow morning when we get up and we get ready for work and we get ready for our day how should psalm 90 change us and i want to suggest uh, three things the first thing I've already mentioned, but I think it bears mentioning again, that, that this remarkable person, Moses, driven in his writing by the Spirit of God, has given us a poem that, that needs to renew our minds. We live in a culture and we live in a time that the air that we breathe, the things that we think, the messages that come to us, all tell us that we are something different than what this psalm tells us. And this psalm tells us that we cannot be defined apart from God. 
We cannot be defined apart from God's gracious covenant love in our lives. And that needs to filter down, I think, into our minds and our hearts on a moment-by-moment basis. That it is true, in verse 8, that everything is done in His presence. Our sins are in His presence. Our thoughts are in His presence. Our reactions are in His presence. And we see ourselves as living out our lives under the very gaze of God. What a remarkable thing. Because there's so many of us, and yet he's attentive to each one of us. There's so many of us, and yet his wrath has been exchanged for his love through Jesus Christ. And we live out our days before him as his people, bound together in everlasting time. So it needs to change the way we think, I think. It needs to give us a worldview that is different than what we're going to hear throughout our mundane lives. The second thing is, I think that it teaches us that the proper response is the fear of God. And that's not just um, a frightenness. It's that awestruckness. It's that reverence. There is an element of recognizing that he is not who we are. Do you remember Mr. Beaver in uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? And he was saying, this is not a God to be trifled with. He's not to be trifled with. He's not to be treated as though he is like us, because he's not. And Lucy then says, oh, I thought he was a, I thought he was a man. I thought he was safe. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's certainly not safe, but he's good. And we need to have that idea that our lives may not go the way we want, but in the goodness of God, his steadfast love is being poured out upon us with the, with the plan of endless days with him. And so we live life his way. We live life with that recognition that our moments are played out before him, in his presence, before his face. He's not to be trifled with. He is, as the writer of Hebrews says, a consuming fire. And so we live before him as our father, who we are in awe of. So meditate, please, on Psalm 90, on these images, on these thoughts. Let it renovate not only how you think about humanity, but how you think and behave towards God. That's the second thing. And finally, the third. Please let this psalm guide your prayers. This psalm is a prayer of the good news, isn't it? The recognition that God loves us and created us to be with Him, and yet things have gone drastically wrong, and there has been sin, and there is His wrath against sin because it is so antithetical to His nature And yet that sin has been overcome by Jesus. He's redeemed our days. And so this is a psalm of the good news, and so we can pray it according to the covenant love as his children that we have been shown. We can praise him in the beginning 
that he is our dwelling place, that he has always intended to be that, that he is the creator, that he is a good God who has given us good things. And so we can rightly start off with praise in verses 1 and 2. There aren't many passages that are better at acknowledging our sin and confessing them than verses 3 through 12, are there? It can lead us to acknowledge who we are, our profound need of him and of Jesus and what he's done. It can guide us, understand that depth of who we are, the depth of what he's done. And then it can allow us to pray for daily graces, that our days are to be redeemed, not just the days then, but now, that we begin to live in the fear of Him now, to rejoice and be glad now, that these days of redemption will be extended to our loved ones who don't yet know Him, to our children and to others, that we can pray for these things. We're praying the very values, the very plan of God as we pray through the psalm in this way. And that's what it was intended for, to guide us in knowing who we are in worship of the King. We can pray because of what Jesus has done in fulfilling this psalm, that this ultimately points back to Him. So who are we? How does the psalm answer this? We're God's creation, who though we fell away, we have been redeemed, brought back, by Jesus' new covenant, forgiven, made his children, and we can enjoy and look forward to everlasting life being joined to him. Let me close in prayer and then please take a few minutes with this psalm, thinking it through, thinking of how it impacts your life. Father, thank you for the sober reminder from your servant from so long ago, of who we are, of how we live, how we're to view ourselves, our relationship to you, even time and death itself. Lord, please bring this psalm to our minds this week when we need it, when we're tempted to think differently, when we're tempted to think that we are something different. Help us to remember that our moments are lived out in your presence before your face, that we have been redeemed, and so you look upon us with your favor, even as we await the glorious reunion and glorification that we have with you. Please let us meditate on this psalm and have our minds renewed by it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.